When my wife and I first got married, we joined a small group, a community group. And uh, as part of that group, we would uh, sit around in a circle and we would read over the, the lectionary readings from the previous Sunday. And somehow I gained the reputation over our time together as being the person who enjoyed the more ominous passages of prophetic literature. Uh, I'm not sure how I earned that reputation. Um, I don't know if it was like just a shine on my face when you'd read about something kind of gloomy and doomy. Um, But I think there's a reason for it. When I first began teaching, uh, I was tossed a sociology class. uh, And I remember coming across a quip about two men who were walking along on the sidewalk. They came across a man who was beaten and face down and immediately the one turned to the other and said, I wish I know who had done this terrible deed. And the other responded, yes, they could probably use our help. Our perspective is important, isn't it? How we see things. When it comes to our point of view, I think there are several things or some terms that are important to consider. Frame of reference, perspective, and orientation. In physics, a frame of reference or a reference frame is a perspective that one uses to determine if an object is moving. It's the place or the environment where we're at to be able to observe. It's the place from where something can be seen and watched. Our perspective has to do with the angle from which we view something. And like in art, perspective is important because the slant we put on things can either bring them to life or can distort them. And third, orientation. To take one's bearings, quite literally to make sure something is facing east or in the right direction. We might sum this up as a person's attitude or their beliefs or their feelings in relation to a specific subject or issue. When your ship is out to sea and the compass is all you have, clarity is essential. Frame of reference, perspective, and orientation. How we see things matters. In books like Isaiah, we get these great sweeping theological visions of creation and new creation, of life and death, sin, holiness, righteousness, justice, God and humanity, the now and the not yet. These visions often have practical and timely significance for the people to whom the prophets were writing. And yet because they're part of God's great plan and vision for all of creation, their work and meaning span far beyond the limited scope of even the person who was writing them. It's a message, and it's one between God and his people in all places and all times. During these seasons of the church year, when we slow down to prepare our hearts and our minds, we're drawn deep into the pages of the biblical prophets because in them we find the viewpoint that is needed to not only see what God has done, but what he is doing and what remains yet to be seen. In Advent, we who live in the footsteps of the Messiah are able to revisit Isaiah's vision in a way that not only remembers what God has done, but all that he still promises to do. We look to the manger in remembrance of what God did through Christ, and we look to the glorious return yet to come. And yet there remains the fact that we must live somewhere in between. 
It's this type of prophetic visioning that recenters our passions, I think, and reorients our hearts. It redirects our gaze back to the Father and all that He is and all that He does. And this is so that we can rest in who He has called us to be. There may not be any better place to see this than in the book of Isaiah, particularly as we actively wait in the midst of this Advent season. In his writings, Isaiah walks us through a series of parallels where he shows us the reality of sin and then offers us a glimpse of the glory that is to come, the fulfillment of God's full and complete plan. In those sweeping visions of creation and new creation, life and death, sin, holiness, righteousness, justice, God and humanity, the now and the not yet, the things we just mentioned. And to appreciate this, we must know where to stand, where to look, and where to go. We must take on the viewpoint of a prophet. It's a viewpoint that isn't just gloom and doom, but it also isn't a farce about the way things could or should be. It's a viewpoint that sees suffering and salvation, death and life, what is and what will be. It's a viewpoint that draws us so deep into the remembrance and anticipation of God's faithfulness and glory that we can't help but pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we may live right in the center of it all. I think we see this well when we first read Isaiah's commissioning, if we were to back up from the passage we read to chapter 6. Isaiah receives a vision that is so grand... (laughs) In every conceivable way. We read in Isaiah chapter 6 starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. Two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah responds as imperfect humans do when they come into the presence of a perfect God. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If we were to cut away here, we would be left with a gloom and doom, with a man condemned, brought to his knees by the glory of God and the weight of his own insufficiency and sin. But Isaiah is not alone in the scene. For the God who reigns in perfect justice and righteousness extends his grace to meet the prophet's cry. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And in an amazing turn of events, we see Isaiah moved from self-condemnation to being called out into the world to do the work that God had given him to do. For in the very next verses, we read, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say. Remembrance 
and anticipation, suffering and salvation, death and life, what is and what will be. A perspective shift that is more than just the angle from which our eyes gaze, but a shift in the very place from which we're able to stand and to taste and to see. A frame of reference that places us in the center of God's will so that we might observe what is truly happening and discern with the help of the Spirit what is right and true and holy. This movement of Isaiah is profound. Isaiah, through God's grace and glory, moves from the rightful place of repentance to the restful place of taking up the yoke of redemption. From woe is me, I am lost, to I have been found and purified. Send me. It reminds us that the judgment of God always exists alongside his mercy. And the righteousness of God is made manifest in the extension of the love we don't deserve. And in this place of atonement, Isaiah is able to hear the words of his God and enter into the ministry of a prophet, which in season and out of season cries out in the wilderness for people to repent and return to the father and the first and primary calling in their lives, namely to bear his image and to dwell in his presence so that they may do the work he has given them to do. This is the way of faith. But it's in this grand vision that we're tempted to enter into what I think we could best call the abstract. It's that place where the reality of life drifts into the coulda, the shoulda, and the woulda. It's that place where uh, schedules and plans and pain and progress and the unknown and life gets in the way. And they begin to take the truths of God's kingdom into the realm of mere ideas and ideals. If you're not picturing yet, I think it's that place we sometimes vision of fat babies floating around on clouds playing harps. It's that place that is an idea of something that seems good, but it pales in comparison to the vision of who God actually is. We need this grounding and reorienting words of Isaiah, I think, as much in our time as Isaiah's own people did. When we read in Isaiah chapter 11, this grand vision of what Isaiah, Isaiah sees of the prophet and all uh, of, of Jesus and all of his glory of what a kingdom looks like when it's made manifest in the power of the spirit. When it comes under the subjection of one who is willing to live into who God has called them to be. Each week when we gather around this table, we pray, Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we get a bit of a glimpse of that in Isaiah's vision from chapter 11. Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what it looks like so that we can recognize the work God is doing and we can join him in it. The scriptures speak of God's kingdom as church, the gathering together or assembly of believers into the body of Christ. It's a community that worships, a community that serves, one that goes out to proclaim and to heal and to share the reality of God's goodness and his glory. The now and the not yet of who God is, of who he is, of who he was and who he's calling us to be. But this kingdom can only be understood from a particular viewpoint because it's not a kingdom whose strength rests in power or wealth. And it's not enforced by weapons or strength of mind. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 8, 
where the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. God's kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. It's possessed by the meek. It thrives on love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we gather around this table, we're not only remembering what God has done, but we're meeting him in the promise that we shall be filled and nourished to continue the active waiting of the church in her mission to the world. And the fruit of this waiting can only come through God because apart from him, we can do no good thing. And the fruit that can only come through him is made manifest when the creator steps into created flesh. When the root of God's covenant promise brings forth a branch whose name is God with us. It's Jesus who will delight in obeying the Lord. And he is no abstraction. What he does will reflect who and whose he is. A calling that God ultimately has placed on all of humanity since the beginning. A call brought to completion in Jesus' life and his utter faithfulness to the Father. A promise made manifest in the coming of the Son. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The cow and bear shall graze, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and a little child shall lead them all. You see, in God's kingdom, the strong will not devour the weak, and the rich will not consume the poor, because they shall be utterly filled and satisfied in not only following behind, but by being grafted into the branch that bears fruit from the old root. That's why each week we pray, thank you, Father, for feeding us in these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that because we believe that the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of the whole earth, has brought the kingdom of God into the world. And we cannot live in the world or experience the glory of his return apart from the help of his Spirit. And it's the Spirit that gives us that frame of reference, that perspective, and that orientation that boldly sees things from the vantage point of a body of which Christ is the head. The reinvigoration of our memories and the reorientation of our hope and vision is Isaiah's cry. A call to remember all that God has done. Greater than the limited experience of any one person, but of creation's entire history of her interaction with her God. The further removed we become from God's breathing life into the first humans, the greater our remembrance should become. For we, through God's grace and the help of his spirit, have a memory of the Messiah, the likes of which Isaiah did not even have. But through repentance and an openness to God's will, we are drawn up into the prophet's vision. Of God's plan when one day all things shall be made new. And if being invited into this work doesn't move us. If being grafted into the vine of God's family line that is Jesus isn't something that inspires us. Then we need to check our pulse. And pray that God's spirit will pour himself afresh into our lives.
I've been reminded of that this week. There is a world waiting and weary, desperate for such hope and faith and peace and joy and love and purity and holiness. And the church holds the key to the kingdom where such a reality exists. We don't just remember it and we don't just anticipate it. We live it each and every day in season and out of season. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill all of us with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may reorient ourselves to the glory of God's kingdom in remembering and in anticipating and in living it out each and every day. Father, help us in this. Help us to live out the glory of your kingdom, to see who you are, to who you are calling us to be, and how we can live it out in our lives. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Guide us into the ways of the kingdom. Thank you for sending your one and only son and for drawing us into the work that you created beforehand for us to do. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite